packing up, loading up my old truck to roll down that road. Your picture on the dashboard, thinking about how long I'll be before I get home. Hi, I'm Todd Dills, and in this edition of the Overdrive Radio Podcast, uh, we'll be uh, listening to a conversation I had with uh, Gary Carlisle of Midland, Texas. He's with uh, an outfit called Agri Impressa, that uh, oil field services uh, industry company. Uh, they have a fleet of uh, several dozen trucks that Carlisle manages, and he also owns one that he operates under his own authority uh, as well. You know, I, I got together with Gary after... Um, Hearing, uh, hearing his prescription for the future of the safety and the hours of service. And we got to talking, though, about the future of the owner-operator business model attendant to reporting I was working on for uh, the March uh, 2016 package of uh, stories called Tomorrow's Trucker. And, uh, you know, Gary had a, had a lot of things to say and in some ways uh, kind of bucked the, the trend of the kind of commentary that I was getting from uh, other folks around the industry who see a lot of evolution in the model uh, of the owner-operator. But uh, Gary, you know, he's been around the business for a long time as an owner-operator and uh, you know, managing uh, a small fleet of trucks that he does. And uh, he had uh, you know, sort of a different perspective on everything, one that uh, is a little more conservative in its outlook. And I think uh, it's, it's important to hear uh, for anybody thinking about you know, where things are going in the future how the industry can shape up uh, over the next several decades. So let's uh, let's get into it quickly. He starts out. Uh, uh, I think I believe I believe I asked him a question about uh, you know just uh, uh, where he came from within the industry, and uh, he gives a little background for you uh, to start. And I'll let him take it over. Well, I work for a company called Agro Impressa, which is a wholesale yeah. mud company. I run their trucks. I have for 29 years. And I've always had my own trucks. I, I've had several trucks of my own. I'm down to one now. I run it under my own name, and the boss allows me to do whatever I want to with it here. They use his phone, his office, whatever. Okay. But uh, I can uh, haul for him or haul other things or whatever as long as I do my job. He don't care what I do. But right. We just keep it that way. It's uh, worked the best for both of us. Right. I make his... Priorities number one, he's about the same age as me. We come from Panhandle, the same part of the world, and Panhandle, okay. Texas. And uh, something we think quite a bit alike. He's basically founded in the oil field, chemical okay. business, tends most of the oil and gas business. But, uh, okay. You know what I mean? I drove a truck when I came here. I was in my, my 30s. And, I started driving a truck young, and my dad had trucks. And got a license and everything when I got out of, went to work my way through college. And when I got out, I went to driving a truck full time, owning my own truck. I really owned my own truck since 1974, I guess. Right. A little bit of everything, I guess. <laughs> well, we all livestock early on, but long okay. in the mid 80s, we. Start doing everything, then we came down here and pulling flatbed and vans ever since. So, but uh, there was about a two or three year period where we was away from livestock and I leased and worked for quite a few different carriers. 
you know, the advent of being an owner operator and leasing to people, you know, really came about. Because it's a natural, you know, thing for a driver to want to own his own truck. You know, I don't know when when the uh, desire, you know, when you grew up, you didn't want to have your own thing, your own place, your own business, right. or whatever. But uh, as a child of the 50s and 60s, that's was the desire that was instilled in me when I grew up. So it's still in place in places because I get guys all the time that drive it want to own their own truck. And the time I've been here at Agra, I've sold several trucks to drivers and showed them how to work it, had a joint account with them until they got on their feet. And nearly all of them left and went to do something else But eventually, but uh, it's a pretty hard concept to, to learn that you have to make money, but uh, hold on to all you can of it because you're going to need it. I mean, right. if you don't got money in the bank, you can't stay the carrier. You can't plan on, uh, you know, tomorrow's wages. Paying for it, you're going to have downtime and yeah. troubled times and breakdowns. And, and it seems to come in waves sometimes. So. Tell me about, uh, you know, I mean, on, that, on that subject, really, I, I keep uh, um, this whole notion of uh, generations and that, that desire among uh, the folks coming up today to own a truck. Do you feel like it's um, you feel like it's any more or less present in trucking today than it was in the past? And where do you see that going in the future? I know, you know the cost of the equipment has gone up substantially in recent times. Well, the cost went up, but the credit, you know, has become more available. You know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and uh, when I was young. Credit was something that was given to you only after, you know, experience and you, know, yeah. you had to buy a predominantly used truck and show that you had somebody to work for, that you yeah. could make it work, that you could show them that it would happen. Well, bankers still do that sort of thing, but the amount of money, you know, the inflationary tendency is, you know, where when I started, if you had five or ten thousand to get in the business, you might need you know, twenty or thirty thousand nowadays, or access to that credit. That was the secret that we didn't have back then. Is you didn't have access to that credit. There wasn't no line of credit. There wasn't no yeah. nothing available. You didn't have credit cards with five, six, eight, ten thousand dollar limits. You know, unless you yeah. had assets. And uh, nowadays, I mean, hell, they start grooming kids up right away. Just give them a credit card before they even got a job. Right, you know what I mean. There's yeah. always a fundamental you got to have. If you can't pay the money back, then you don't need to be spending it. And it hell, the kind of money they loan you on cars and pickups these days is it's enormous, you know. But I, I see the owner operator as something here to stay. Yeah. There's, a new, there's more or less a new generation of them. I mean. In my day, you learned to work on them and fix them yourself, so you had that ace in the hole. And nowadays, very little of it can you do because of the electronics and the specific things that they've got on them that that complicate that. You know, you right. still do some brake issues or seals or water water leaks or oil leaks, but there's so much of it that's technical anymore that uh, it's hard to do without computers and uh, equipment to work on them. So, 
you know, you're bound to use dealerships and arthritis centers that got that kind of equipment. I think that the trucking business itself always encourages, you know, owner operators. The owner operators always uh, withstood, you know, the, the the less than desirable hauling. I mean, if you right. had a if you were a carrier that had enough business for say thirty trucks, then uh, to keep them busy full time, then you had to have enough to keep 40 trucks busy sometime because you got to have more than what you need or you ain't going to be able to keep them all busy. So usually you need owner operators to take up that extra slack. And if you were the carrier and you're the dispatcher or the man in control, you could select what loads you farmed out to this guy and maybe put some more undesirable, less desirable loads on him than what you would your own trucks. But on the other hand, if the guy was really dependable, you might want him on the more important thing to execute it properly so that you got, you know, you get your foot in the door and get started hauling these people, then you can kind of afford to to let go of the, you know, being quite being so stringent on the requirements of it. But, uh, you know, you, the owner-operator has always been used in that fashion. You know, most of them were precisely accurate, you know, good people work twice as hard as a driver nearly and uh, but then so a lot of times they just had to live off the leavings and then in slow times like oil field is here now you just lay them off go do something else well you know what I mean when you're that guy you got to hunt a new line of work today because it's gone you know and uh, you never are 100% safe I mean of course carriers that take on the the, the realm of you know having a large, extremely large portion of their trucks, or maybe all of them owner operators, and that mm -hmm. all changes. But. I look at the uh, the business model of Landstar, a big big uh, carry like that, but they sort of the, they have the kind of network of agents, and um, you know the owner operators are in a lot of in a lot of ways uh, dispatched themselves, kind of like any other independent would be. Um, yeah, that that kind of model. Yeah, I've heard a lot of interest from, uh, and I've seen a lot of success from some of these younger owner operators uh, in that kind of a, a model. Because you always you have a you have an available freight pool. You don't have the uh, whatever minor headaches there are for maintaining your own authority, um, and and you and, and you have a lot of latitude about what you can do. Um, course, like everything else, there's slow periods and what happens. You know, since they come up with the advent of uh, contract authority when they busted the ICC down and made authority right. available, you know, when they made authority that available and you came along and you imposed the, yeah. you know, the IRP and the IFTA and the United, yeah. now it's the United Carrier, Unified Carrier deal, yeah. you you narrowed down the ramifications of what you got to do to be in the trucking business. I mean, when I started, you had to go to each state for reciprocity right. and for, you know, getting your authority, uh, you know, registered in each state and proof of insurance to each state. I mean, it was a really difficult process. You filed fuel reports in nearly every state. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's simplified. You don't have no ton mile and all this crap they had back in those days. And, uh, you know, you pull your, you know, just like your registration folder for your truck, you pull that out, 
you can have about three or four pieces of paper in there. You'll have a copy of an insurance, maybe a copy of your authority, your registration, and your IFTA deal. And besides yeah. that, you don't need anything else. Hell, back in the old days, you had to have 20, 30 pieces of paper. Whatever state you went to, you better have a piece of paper for each one. Even if you had IRP, which came out early on, you know. But sure. nowadays, it's simplified. A guy can do that, but how do you get the reputation to call no. this old boy and get a load from him unless you can, you know, take care of a substantial part of his business? Now, no. That's where you need the agents, and most time, Landstar agents or somebody like that will get organized, and they'll farm their business out to a certain number of trucks. Well, they also get these trucks that come through that are in different parts of the organization, but their basic business is done by a double handful of guys that are taking care of certain customers. As long as they're Landstar people, I've hauled is a brokerage item for Landstar people. And I've okay. seen how they work, but uh, it's always when you lease on to these people, you know, going through that lease and figuring out what it says and what you're going to be required to do is always a challenge, you know, and figuring out sure. if you can make any money at it. Because a lot of times you can't see what you're going to be making, and yet you have to sign that you're going to, you know, pull their trailer and take care of the maintenance on it and any kind of damage you do or whatever. You know, mm -hmm. different things that they require you to do for this lease. But a lot of times you sign it blindly just hoping you can make some money on it because you really can't understand what the ramifications, everything that's in that piece of paper. And I wonder... Um that that was one of the questions that I had too about about future. What do you think about you know that the fact that that is reality, you know, in the in the, in the way the leases work today, and they're they're kind of exclusive. If you do that, you know, you can't you can't go out and do other work. You're not by terms of your contract, you're not supposed to anyway. Uh, you have to agree to that. I wonder if you know in the future you see a bigger. Uh, um, well, let's, let me back up a little bit. You you have that you have the fact of that the fact that most leases are exclusive today, and then you also have um, you know a lot of attention uh, among in, in sort of concentrated operations at ports and such, and, and it kind of spills over into some of these over the road companies as well um, uh, on the that independent contractor classification, and uh, so it kind of makes uh, it sort of puts this kind of chilling effect on on, on employers that you know, to lease owner operators and I a, lot think folks, a lot of folks moving to brokerage and you use a lot of independence. I wonder if in the, in the future the lease, the exclusive lease model, is going to be less prominent than it is today and more there'll be more independence out there, more guys with their own authority. If, if that'll be more of a normal, regular thing. Well, if I get you know, the difference between a guy that signs a lease and then somebody just calls him up on their brokerage side yeah. and hauls for him is you're doing it load below and you can do it with so many other people you want to, but they can use you or not use you. And they yeah. can also insulate their self from a lot of, you know, if yeah. you got somebody leased to you and you're, dry and you're using them every day, then they still, you know, can uh, demand that... Uh, you follow safety guidelines and stuff like that, and they're aware of what you've been doing, so they're actually committed to, yeah. you know, to do that. Well, if you just take a load into a brokerage side and you're kind of a fully independent, then they can insulate themselves from knowing some of these things. 
Yeah. You know, for instance, if you got electronic log and you decide you want to lie about it, say you had an additional driver or whatever, right. and you could insulate yourself through them and create a mythical second driver and put him <laughs> in once in a while. And if you get stopped and he he got off back down the road somewhere, I don't know. But I mean, yeah, there's yeah. all kinds of things you can come up with. But if if you're fully independent, and they're not that knowledgeable about your business, and they can insulate themselves from being in any kind of litigation, right. or allow you to do that. Now they'll make you sign papers that you're you're not going to violate any laws, and you ain't going sure. to do that. But uh, yeah. I think that you'll see quite a bit more of that as these you know regulations come down to force these carriers to do certain things. They may find a niche where they can make just as much money by pushing that off on the individual some way, instead of assuming it themselves. And you know, I've seen people. You know, Winkles Trucking was one of them over in Pecos. Had you know a couple hundred trucks at one time. He's out of business now, but uh, they required everybody to go to those GPS tracking uh, devices. It was the early kind of electronic log, and it was supposed to help you do fuel. Sure and all the things that they say they'll do. He, I knew two owner-operators, one of them was an old friend of mine, and it cost him at that time, this was in, uh, I want to say, 98 or 99. They made them all put these units in there, and it cost them $400 a truck to put them in there. And, uh, it cost them, and they backed all this out of your lease. I mean, you either had to pay it up front or they'd take it out of your check, and... Uh, it cost them 19.95 a month or something for service. They have increased technology, but they ain't done anything about the greed. They got to have this money to go along with it. You know, it's kind of like cable TV. It probably don't cost them 10 or 15 bucks a month to provide it. But if I can get you to pay 70 yeah. or 80, I mean, why give up that money? But anyway, Winkles kept them deals in there about a year, and he took them all out. Because he was okay. telling him what he didn't want to know, and he didn't want to have that information available in case okay. uh, incident, accident, or event, you know, came against him. You know. Do you think that uh, you, know, you say you know probably going to be more of a desire of companies to kind of push off that risk onto onto independence? Do you think there's anything about um, the generation of young people today? that is going to make them uh, more willing to assume such risk? Um, I mean, I've talked to some people that think that they, ought, that they are, that they have like a more of a, uh, more of an independent type spirit um, than, than, say, my generation, you know, which I was born in the mid-70s, you know. And, and, you know, given you know, what we have today and the way that the, uh, the Internet seems to be getting to introduce new business opportunities, new ways to connect with business partners uh, and multiple business partners. You know, you have a lot of these uh, these online uh, load matching services kind of going uh, very on-demand almost, you know, uh, speeding up the, you know, the transaction a little bit, uh, and not making it instantaneous or anything, but uh, you know, making uh, the connection between, for instance, brokers or and carriers faster, or even shippers and, and carriers uh, faster and a little easier than uh, in years past. Um, I mean, do, do you think that um, that'll that'll be a reality in the, in the future? Uh, well, I don't think you'll see 
you know, a lot of young people that are <clears throat> what I'd call college eligible. Yeah. I mean, if they have funds available to go to college and do things, I don't think you'll find hardly any in that range that are, you know, the privileged right. few that will come towards truck driving or having to own their own truck. But you'll see people that have already started at something else in life rotate to it or underprivileged. Right. Uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, <clears throat> I'd say immigrant or Mexican or, you know, other people that see the opportunity and right. want that, and they want to build on it with two or three trucks. Yeah. And they have family or friends that are willing to participate and help them with it. You know, the best thing you can do is if you get to owning a truck, if you got somebody knowledgeable that you know that'll take care of the equipment and you put them in the truck, you know. If yeah. I could find seven or eight drivers tomorrow that would take care of my vehicles and show up and pass the drug test, and do what they're told, I would probably buy that many more trucks. But the uh, driving mm -hmm. issues, uh, that's the critical horn right now. But almost yeah. every one that you call if I can get driving good and he gets to be pretty good at what he does, won't stone his own truck. It's just so hard to put that intelligence in him to do to manage the money after that. That usually they're always their downfall. You know, they don't, the amount of money that you handle anymore you know, when I was in my day, if you made five or six thousand dollars a month in gross money, you could live off of it. When I quit, you know, got off the road in '84, '85, '86. Actually, started this job in '87. When I got off the road, you had to make about ten grand a month to make payments. Now you got to make about fifteen to twenty to make it all work. Well, the amount of money you got to handle, you need two months worth of income sitting in a bank waiting on you. Well, it's yeah. hard for anybody to sit there and see thirty grand sitting in a bank that you ain't spending. You can get thinking, man, I need a house, I need a boat, I need a motorcycle or something that ain't going to make you no money. If you're busy, it's going to be sitting home under the shade tree or in the garage or wherever. Hey, you might even be paying to store the damn thing somewhere. And, uh, you know, when you make a tax return out and you show making that, you know, 200 grand a year and you didn't, and technically as the owner of it, if you wasn't driving it, you'd be lucky to make 20,000. You're not a very good, uh, it's not a very solid business opportunity. In some years you have bad luck, you may have lost money, I'd take it out of your pocket, put it back in it to keep it going till next year. So, I mean, that's the danger you are and these people see that risk and, it's kind of like anything else, so the initial progress you make is usually dictates how well you go on with it. If you get into business in the first three months is easy and you make some money, real good money, then all your soul in, but that commitment always wanes whenever you start losing, you know, or you have a wreck or, you know, something, something yeah. negative happens, I don't know. Maybe a shipper goes broke and sticks you for the money, or a broker goes broke and sticks you for you know, six, eight, ten thousand dollars or something. You know, they still let people broker freight. You know, they just got through up in their fee to seventy-five thousand yeah. for the bond. Yeah. You know, not their fee, but what the bond has to be. Well, there ain't any broker worth his metal. It he gonna be doing seventy-five thousand dollars worth of business a day worth anything. I mean, somebody gets sixty days down the road before they fold their tent, and you don't know it. Then at least got 
1.5 mil out that nobody's going to get no money on. But it happens all the time. I mean, I don't see the mm -hmm. tremendous amount of young people unless they're really challenged in what else is available in life. Anybody can get out and learn to drive and, you know, ramrod a truck down the road if they really work. But a lot of these people that, you know, I've seen out here, we've got a lot of Hispanic where you see a lot of them that, man, that's the opportunity they need. They learn to drive. They learn to tend to business. And they're conservative mm -hmm. to start with of what they do with their money. You know, then uh, they get with it. You mentioned the difficulty, um, you know, keeping a keeping a good drivers uh, as drivers. Um, that that brings up the whole notion of where 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 pay for company drivers is, is going to go in the future. I know there's uh, there's a fair amount of pressure in California. The thing, the way they're wage laws are there, pushing some companies to consider hourly pay with incentive on top for company drivers. People talk about the notion that one day uh, it'll get so hard to keep a driver around that we want to put them on some, some kind of high salary and they'd be able to negotiate their uh, negotiate salary every year just like you know any professional employee would. And, and, and there's the, there's the whole there's the there's the exemption from the the, you know, the Fair Labor Standards Act's overtime requirements too, and people talk about that going away at some point, given that uh, ELDs are, are coming in. And well, uh, there's a move for regulation on detention. There'll always be a day coming a truck. You know, when you when you still tell somebody what you haul something for, you quote it ever how you want to do it, but time's money. And if you treat it like a piece of equipment or a bulldozer or something, so well, it's going to take five hours. I need $100 an hour. It's going to be you know, $500 or you know, whatever. You know what I mean? I mean, the day may come that you quote everything on a time-specific frame, If you're, especially if you go to paying your drivers by the hour. But it, it is kind of strange that uh, there's a move to force everybody to pay overtime, but nobody, and I ain't seen it anywhere, has mentioned the fact that Truck drivers don't draw overtime. You know, they yeah, work they 70 hours in eight days or 60 hours in seven days, and they did draw straight time. They never, I never see yeah. them. In the yeah. oil field, they put them on time like that, and they get overtime. A lot of time, it's service work and stuff. I mean, yeah. you go out to a location, and the job of driving out there and back is not the major part of it. You have to do something while you're there, either unload, right. load, or, or maybe move the product or whatever to get it, you know, where they want it and how they want it, maybe even go to a different site when you're through and reinstall it there, you know. So, yeah. uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. There is some people that do that, but by and large, the biggest part of people don't. And I ain't never seen it mentioned why they don't uh, say nothing about that because these guys are working 60, 70, 80 hours a week, you know. Yeah. So, you know, it never had been a hard deal to determine how much a guy should have been working if you right. see him on a five or six hundred mile haul, I mean, you had 10 or 12 hours there that he was having to work. Now, if he had extra time loading or unloading, maybe that's something else. But, uh, you know, I mean, you could always determine that whether you had an electronic log or not. Should we require uh, employers, all employers to pay drivers over time? A lot of people say yes. I wonder if that's coming. Um, a lot of people say it's... Uh, I think it could be possible, but uh, industry is going to resist it because it's never been. Yeah. I think eventuality is going to be that if you can get drivers 
availability of them so short that nobody can get them. And uh, you know, I don't know if you recognize the, the situation, but in 2009, eight and nine, you know, we had the depression, and uh, you know, right after that, freight rates rates made the probably the most yep. consistent jump in uh, that I remember in my lifetime. All of a sudden, people were willing and ready to pay two bucks a mile to get stuff done because they couldn't find nobody to do it. You seen people like Air Trucking go broke? It had what 400 trucks or something. Yeah. I mean, there was a you know a whole train load of independents and little guys, 1,500 truck people that just quit right. because it got too hard to do. Well, all that hit at once. They were coming out of the woodwork calling you if you ever haul loads for them, and I need some help. And mm -hmm. we couldn't find no help here. And I mean, it kind of went, the oil field got it running and, you know, everything just had a runaway. Well, you know, about a year ago, all that kind of fell apart. But it was a pretty yeah. good run for four or five years. Down in there, particularly down where you are in that, in that oil business, for sure. Still, the seasonal type stuff, you know, every the uh, mm -hmm. building materials falls off every winter. You know, yep. produce falls away until you got some place, you know, that starts making produce. Yep. You know, some of some of it's moving everywhere all the time, but I mean, it just has its up right. and down in different areas. Still, consistently, we had higher freight rates for three and four years. I was really, I think that that's probably through all this mess here. When the ELD finally comes, the axe comes down. If it actually comes down, you know, seventeen. I think it right. starting right then the burden of putting all these damn ELDs in and all this you know, I don't know, they keep coming up with these deals and slowly but surely you're eliminating older experienced drivers and making it harder for them to work and you're gonna require newer, less experienced drivers. And, man, that's yeah. costly to the trucking business, it's unsafe. I mean yeah. you gotta pay for this guy to take your lumps all over when you're hiring. That's extremely expensive. And if you add the fact that they're short and you're probably going to get less quality out of them, it gets worse. I don't know where all that's going to go, but it ain't going to be very good. It ain't going to be very safe, and it's going to be extremely inflationary. I mean, if you'll notice back after 09, all the freight prices on everything you ate, wore, grocery store, farmer store, wherever, everything escalated. It all bought all vehicle parts went up about double in price. They claim fuel surcharge or freight rates, every one of them. Hell, milk, four dollars, five dollars a gallon or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it ain't never went back and everybody blamed Obama for it. Well, what you, who you blame for it is nobody did anything about the depression. All they yeah. did is cover it up and say things got better. Well, I've got news for them, things ain't never gotten better. It just looks like it did. If they keep driving nails in this coffin, it ain't gonna get better. You know, they just need to back off regulation, let the world breathe a little while and get used to what they got. Give us about 10 years and come back, we could probably sustain ourselves under more regulation, but you can't just keep piling it on. <laughs>